So people always find it really surprising and have these sort of um, horrified looks on their faces when I say I've worked, you know, built companies with my husband. Not everybody, but you know, some people are like, oh my God, I could never do that. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show. An interview podcast my friend Lewis and I started way back when and since then haven't stopped. We interview entrepreneurs and investors in a bunch of different industries from crypto to real estate to internet entrepreneurship to content creation. We've sort of done it all as we are trying to figure out what we are going to do in the future. And that in itself is sort of why our podcast is interesting because Lewis and I are 21 and 22 years old, not your traditional 40-year-old podcaster. And that gives us an interesting perspective when interviewing really cool people. Yes. You forgot to mention the industry of online education, which is the subject of this interview. We have Victoria Ransom, who's founder CEO of a company called Prisma, which is making a really cool homeschool alternative online school called Prisma. It's designed at the moment for fourth grade through eighth graders to replace their traditional homeschooling options where they do kind of live cohort based classes with a bunch of kids their age and get a ton of individualized attention in their classes as well. It's a very, very different educational model from a traditional homeschooling and extremely different from a traditional public or private education in the classroom. Uh, Victoria does a really good job in this interview telling you about the model of her education, how they teach their students, how they structure their days, how they structure their semesters and why. Victoria's background before this, uh, she previously worked at Google because she sold a company to them, a digital marketing tech company she sold to them that she managed within Google and then went on to a couple other things before starting this company before the start of the pandemic, which was just conveniently accelerated by the pandemic because of the increased interest in online school. That's all I'm going to say before we get started. Enjoy this interview. I'm excited for you to listen to it. So I will switch to it now. Victoria, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Thanks for having me. Of course. So could you walk through your background uh, just for our listeners who are not aware of who you are from, you know, where you grew up to starting your first company and eventually selling it? Um, and then we'll get into Prisma a little bit later. Sure. And I'll try not to make this a long story. Just stop, stop me if it's too long. Uh, I grew up in New Zealand. That's why I have a funny accent. Uh, Americans think I sound like a foreigner. New Zealanders think I sound like a foreigner. Uh, and, uh, I lived in New Zealand until, um, I was 17 and then I came over to the U S actually to study at an international school, uh, in Las Vegas, New Mexico. Who knew there was a Las Vegas in New Mexico? Uh, and then ended up going to college in the U S, um, cause I learned what, you know, what a great, um, higher education system there is in the U S. I studied psychology in Spanish. I graduated thinking I have no idea what to do with my life. So went off and became an investment banker in New York for a couple of years, knowing that would not be my lifelong career, but wanting to do something that would keep doors open to me. And while I was there, this was actually, now I'm really dating myself. This was the 2000, early 2000s. I caught a little bit of the dot-com boom. I actually was there for more of the dot-com bust. But because uh, I saw a little bit of the boom, I got exposure to entrepreneurs. At that time in investment banks, you were seeing some fairly early stage companies just because there was so much hype around entrepreneurship. And that was my first insight into the idea that, gosh, you can actually create your own career by starting your own company, uh, which then led in 2001, my then boyfriend and I, he's now my husband, and we've founded a number of companies together, I think four, uh, to start our sort of own first step into entrepreneurship, which was an online adventure travel company. Learned a lot from that also about the difficulty of growing a, you know, successful venture in a very niche space. Uh, we can talk more about that if you want. Uh, but actually, so, you know, ran access trips for about five years before um, actually bringing in a, a different CEO. But it directly led to the next venture, which was uh, a software product for managing online travel businesses. Basically, access trips grew to, the, the company was called Access Trips, grew to a point where we needed some kind of software to manage the bookings and the, um, all the logistics that go into it. Couldn't find something on the market build our own software product. So that was my first entryway into building software, made some really rookie mistakes with that. Um, 
but uh, you know, really enjoyed that process and initially just built it for access trips, but then thought, huh, there could be the opportunity to commercialize this. So it was in the middle of taking that product, uh, you know, very close to launching that uh, um, to the world to sell to other travel ventures or other travel businesses, when along came Facebook brand pages for businesses. And we thought, oh, great place to market access trips. Um, exactly our target dem demographic was sort of the sweet spot for Facebook. So we created a brand page for access trips and then said, now what? This is crickets. This is really boring. What can you do with a brand page on Facebook? Which then led to us um, actually wanting to give away a free trip because we'd done that very successfully to build our newsletter uh, list for access trips. But we needed to build a Facebook app in order to be able to run a little giveaway a free trip contest on Facebook. Uh, did that, built that for ourselves, and then immediately thought, oh, there's going to be a ton of companies that will need to make their Facebook brand pages more engaging, which actually led to the launch of the third company, which was called Wildfire, which uh, for a little while we were trying to run and launch two companies at the same time, the travel software company and the uh, Facebook marketing or social media marketing company pretty quickly realized the social media marketing opportunity was the big opportunity that we were catching a wave early in its life cycle that basically every business in the world could potentially be a target customer. So doubled down on that um, and Wildfire ended up being a a great success, you know, but bigger than I guess we had ever dreamed prior to that point. Uh, we, over the course of four years, grew to 400 employees and I think we had 30,000 customers and offices in eight different countries. So it was a real whirlwind in what it takes to scale an organization very quickly. Uh, wildfire, we ended up um, selling to Google. We had a very exciting sort of process where a number of uh, large corporates were interested in acquiring us and it uh, has to be one of the most exciting and nerve-wracking times of my life, actually. But we sold to Google, uh, spent three years at Google, um, which is also a really interesting time, good learning experience. Then left Google and actually decided to give myself a break. By then I had one young child and subsequently had two more. Uh, so spent a couple of years just traveling and enjoying life and parenthood, but had it very firmly in our minds. When I say our, I say my husband and I, that whatever we did next, we wanted it to be something that could have a large positive impact on the world. And uh, ended up getting really interested in the education space, mostly because of our own children. Um, you know, as our oldest started to approach school age, we really started to think deeply about what kind of education did we want for our kids? What kind of education would be best for the sort of lives they're going to end up leading as adults? Also, what sort of education would work best with the kind of life that we as a family want to lead, uh, which then led to the launch of my current venture called Prisma, uh, which I'm you know, happy to go into more detail about that. Um, but it's basically focused on really reimagining the entire K-12 educational experience, although for now focused on um, K-4 through 8. I have a lot of follow-up questions. I think that was overall a, I'd say you, you, can, you uh, compressed a lot of really good history into very concise answer so great great there uh real quick just one like not not a crazy question what is the meaning of the name of the company prisma prisma yeah um you know it comes from prism that's pretty obvious and uh you know what the way we thought about it is if you shine a light on a prism at just the right angle, then it comes out a rainbow on the other side. So we were sort of inspired by the idea if we can really um, hit on a way to make learning really exciting for kids, then we will enable them to shine in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be able to shine. So that that's the inspiration behind the name. Of course, there's also the reality behind naming companies, which is every good name has already been taken. So, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that was the first name we thought of, but uh, it was a name that we liked and was available in a URL, URL format that we liked. So, What do you think are the problems with the current K through 12 system? Like not just <clears throat> problems in general, but like the fundamental problems 
that are affecting the children in America today? Like what are, what are the things that are, are really, really big? Yeah, there's many, um, but let me highlight some of the bigger ones. I mean, at a basic level, I just think education hasn't evolved at a pace that matches the change that we see in our world today. And I think the change we're going to see in the future is, is going to be even, you know, at a greater rate of, of change than we've seen um, as you look at AI changing up the, the job landscape. And yet fundamentally, the education system is a pretty entrenched monopoly. Those sort of systems don't generally change very fast. So you look at our lives in terms of the way we communicate completely and fundamentally and unrecognizably different from how it was 100 years ago. The way we live, the way we work, the way we shop, everything is just, you know, bring someone from 100 years ago to today and their mind would boggle, they wouldn't even recognize it. But take them into a classroom, it's going to look pretty familiar to them, actually. It's not that education hasn't changed, but it hasn't evolved in a more fundamental way to, to sort of meet the way our lives have changed. Uh, so that's one getting into more sort of specifics, I think this, this sort of conveyor belt system we have where based on the age of a kid, they are put into a certain grade level, like, you know, you are this age, you are in third grade, you are expected to learn this amount of content during your third grade year. If you're not getting it or you're not able to move as fast as the content requires, you're sort of out of luck. You're just going to move into fourth grade, not having really grasped third grade, which means you fall further behind and your self-esteem drops even more. Or maybe you could move way faster than that, in which case you're probably sitting there feeling a little bored. I was talking to a friend the other day who said her child spends 90% of the day sitting in a corner reading a book because she gets through everything so quickly and then she just, oh, reading a book's kind of a good thing to do. But this sort of one-size-fits-all approach uh, is just not serving so many kids. It ends up being a one-size-fits-few approach. Um, I think uh, there's clearly an issue with equity and funding in schools and the idea that just based on your zip code, uh, you have a fundamentally different uh, experience and um, different opportunities than you do, uh, depending on you know if you live in a different zip code. It's actually something that, as we talk more about Prisma, has been really exciting for us that uh, we are able to mix kids from all over the US and actually all over the world in a way that they're getting access to kids from all different kind of mindsets and viewpoints. We're also able to take the very best teachers, we call them coaches, in the world and a kid in rural Tennessee can get access to that coach in a way that you may not be able to get them to move to rural Tennessee. Um, so we're excited about sort of the way you can break down some of those zip code barriers. Um, you know, I think there's just a, a, an issue around testing and the way that testing dictates so much of what happens in schools. It dictates this need to keep moving, keep moving because we've got to cover this content. It takes away from the creativity of teachers who in my experience are, are wonderfully creative and are full of great ideas, but they're being asked to cover this certain content in time for the tests, uh, which again, just means kids are on a bit of a treadmill. Uh, so I think testing is a problem. I, I could go on, but those are some of the bigger ones. Right. No, I think that those are all super interesting. It reminds me of how the school system sort of started with like, I think it was Horace Mann in London and like how he started the common school, which was just to like put people into <clears throat> factory jobs. Like that was the goal because that was what was needed. The labor market was saying like, we need these people to be able to mm -hmm. do this kind of work. And then he starts the normal school for the teachers of the common school. And like this sort of, it just snowballs in this giant bureaucracy that like right. is broken. I mean, so many livelihoods depend on, the, the school system, right? Like there's teach, there's millions of teachers who are feeding their kids based off of the system that like is broken. But if you, if you break it in half, like you're, you have mm -hmm. a vacuum and a lot of these people don't know what to do with their lives. So it's interesting how like some systems can get so ingrained in our society that even if they're yeah. bad, 
like it is it's necessary for them to continue existing at least for for now at least i think higher Um, education has quite a hold on the whole system because there's certain criteria you need to get into college parents are so focused on getting their kids into college for understandable reasons so again things like you know achievement in math and sats and things start to dictate so much of the focus whereas you know and just this idea that all the focus is around siloed academic disciplines and yet mm. how many kids and it's all gamification it's, it's all it's all potentially mm-hmm. gamified mm-hmm. and if you have the if you have access to resources your ability to game the system sure. increases Absolutely. exponentially yep. like Very true. so and then that comes back to what you're talking about with like the equity or not equity the um <clears throat> the, mm-hmm. the zip code because like it's sort of a mutually reinforcing problem too because people want to buy real estate and zip codes that they have access to good schools. So the value of these houses increases and gives them more resources to expend on their children. And it's just like an impossibly hard problem. And what you're doing is like decentralizing it, right? Location is no longer a factor in getting quality access. Mm -hmm. Location is no longer a factor. Uh, Which means you can, you know, bring the best teachers to kids wherever they are, but you can also just, you know, this problem with zip code that you're talking about means you start to get uh, these just um, rather homogenous communities. When you think about it, schools are the Mm. most sort of, um, you know, the the most bubble-like sort of, you know, in a world where this idea of bubbles and sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, siphoning yourself off from other views, schools are incredibly hyper-localized. And in some school districts, Mm. I think there's still wonderful diversity, but in others, both from a socioeconomic, a race, and a political standpoint, you're getting these sort of echo chambers, which again, when you can bring kids together from all different parts of the country and the world, you can start to break that down. I want to continue getting into the philosophies and I just want to commend you and say your website uh, whoever did the writing on that website and just the design, it's like very thorough and beautifully animated and like the, all the philosophies. So there's a lot uh, I want to get into there, but just so people can kind of keep up, I want to kind of sequence this first. Uh, what's like the student experience like, right? Because they're not going into a classroom. I'm assuming they're not sitting in one spot right. for eight hours with just 10 minute breaks to go, you know, get a sip of water. No. Uh, what's like the, you know, weeks or weeks slash semester structure. Cause it's not just two, it's like six cycles. Just like, what's like the general sure. experience for a student yeah. in the school? Yeah, uh, let me answer that. And and I'm also conscious I haven't actually even, I think, said exactly what Prisma is. So maybe I should quickly give the high level, which is... Then we'll put the philosophies in context. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Prisma is, for fourth through eighth graders, it is a comprehensive educational solution. So it's not a supplemental program. It's a a full school experience for kids who are learning from home. Uh, It is not like a traditional online school, which I'd say have tended to sort of take the traditional model of um, lectures and grades and siloed academic subjects and bring them online. Uh, It's not that because we very much bring in some of the most innovative practices in education like interdisciplinary learning and hands-on project-based learning and kids being able to learn based on their own interests, giving kids lots of choice, um, allowing kids to to learn at whatever level they're at. So we have kids at Prisma that are doing seventh grade math and, you know, so the equivalent of seventh grade math and fourth grade um, English. Uh, So not traditional online school. It's also not uh, traditional homeschooling because kids are very much part of a community of other kids we call them cohorts that they interact with uh on a daily basis in uh, both learning together but socializing together we have daily stand-ups which are really important part of our sort of community experience where the kids share with one another and you know talk about what's happening in the world what's happening in their lives Um, we also have coaches who are there to really uh, get to know each of their mentee learners in a very deep way in terms of what makes them tick, what they're excited about, what they're capable of, and to really guide them towards achieving their best. So it's, you know, it's got the flexibility of homeschooling, but it's different from homeschooling. And for obvious reasons, it's not bricks and mortar schooling either. So we think we've created a really, uh, a pretty new approach to education that um, is fundamentally flexible, flexible for the family in terms of where they live and the sort of uh, life they lead 
flexible for the learner in terms of meeting their interests and their speed of learning and um, sort of their goals and flexible in that we really try to adapt. We're trying to build in a model that's inherently adaptable as the world changes. Uh, so, you know, a big part of Prisma is um, organizing the learning around themes. And so as new topics come up that are really important to kids, that are important to their futures, we can just build that very easily into, into our curriculum and into our model. So, so that's Prisma at a, at a high level day-to-day. Uh, -day, uh, well, let me start. Maybe you said sort of on an annual basis, how do we organize ourselves? I'll mention that and then I'll talk about day-to-day. So we organize, um, Prisma is organized in five-week cycles and every cycle has a different overarching theme. Uh, so past themes that we've done, we've done Cities of the Future. Uh, we've done um, Inventor Studio where kids were real inventors and they learned all about the design thinking process, which is sort of a huge foundational part of Prisma, this idea of iterating and constant improvement. Uh, right now there's an entrepreneurship theme where the kids are coming up, um, working together to come up with business ideas. And I've actually, my mind has been blown by how viable some of the ideas are. I didn't expect that. Uh, we've done a hidden histories theme, which looked at US history, but from the perspective of what we can learn today uh, and so on and so forth. And everything that the kids are doing, so every cycle um, the kids are learning on a, uh, working on a project, so a very sort of tangible project that they then present at our expo day at the end of every cycle. Uh, they have live workshops that are uh, related to the theme. Um, but, but within this, there's always choice for the kids. So they can take it in the direction they want. But the idea of us having themes is, is then we can really touch on topics that kids care about, topics that are important to their current or future lives, but it also gives us some framework so that the kids are all sort of there. There's some unification around what they're all working on, but within that, they get a lot of choice. So, you know, when it comes to projects, we don't tell the kids what project. We give them a bunch of options and they can design their own. Uh, we also have one, um, in addition to our six main themes, we have a service learning cycle that the kids do in December. Uh, so that's the sort of annual structure. Daily, the kids are doing a mix of some online learning and some uh, asynchronous learning. Uh, online, the kids start their day with a stand-up, which I already mentioned. So it's the same group of kids, the same coach, and they really form a super strong community because they're meeting on such a regular basis. And it's all about let's get the day going, let's sort of social emotional component, talk about how we're doing, maybe talk about what's going on in the world. Uh, sometimes they play sort of fun games together, but really about community building. And then um, each day kids have a main Prisma workshop, at least one. Sometimes um, there's, uh, on some days, there's another workshop. But the way we think about our live sessions at Prisma is, uh, what does it make sense to do when you bring kids together? It doesn't make sense for them to sit and listen to a teacher lecture to them. They, they can watch a video for that. Uh, what makes sense is that they discuss, they listen to one another, they give feedback to one another, they collaborate with one another to solve problems. So our workshops are very much based around that idea. Um, you know, happy to give some examples, but they're, they're really rooted in, in the kids being the star of the show and in really uh, solving real tangible issues. So we have an ethical decision-making workshop, for example, where the kids are being confronted with um, you know, often real things that happened in the world or hypothetical, but things that could happen in the world, there's no right or wrong answer. And they're asking, being asked to think about this and debate and, and sort of, um, you know, weigh up the pros and cons. Uh, we, we had a recent theme called Uncharted Territories, which looked at space exploration and also deep sea exploration. And then the kids are spending part of their day working on their asynchronous work which is a combination of their projects that they're doing every cycle. And the projects always start with an investigation. The kids spend a week just learning about the theme. We curate a bunch of podcasts and videos and articles that they can choose from. Then they spend a week doing 
little mini projects. So we create curate a whole library of cool mini projects and then they do their main project. Uh, and then they're also working on their what we call math missions and writing missions, which are um, sort of extra level. We build math and writing into the workshops and into the projects, but there's also this is sort of extra focus on those areas. So sorry, that was a long answer, but hopefully it, it gets more color. No, <clears throat> you, you hit on a lot of the things that I'm interested in from city building to, to entrepreneurship. Like that sounds incredible. And there's this concept that I, I heard about on a podcast this last week uh, with Tim Ferriss and Chris Dixon. It's gone around on Twitter. It's very popular right now, but it's the words is skeuomorphic. And the idea is that like an example of something that is being skeuomorphic is like how when Apple uh, made the books app, they made it a bookshelf and like taking things from the physical world, bringing them into the digital world and representing them as they are in the real world and how that's not necessarily the right way to do it. And I think uh, a lot of people's um, experience with education over the last 18 months has been very skeuomorphic and that, you know, I'm in college. It went from, it went from class, class and uh, physical, the physical world, and then taking that class and yeah. moving it directly online in exactly the same way that it existed um, right. in the real world, which just doesn't make sense with new mediums. And it sounds like you guys are having a completely different, you, you know, you're starting from first principles looking at what is necessary in the world today and what kind of things in the future like these kids are going to need, which are, you know, STEM, like STEM problems, the ability to communicate effectively, like solving mm -hmm. real world like issues. Um, I have sure. two concerns though about the model in general. Um, the first is just, you know, so I know that at the top of your funnel, it's like people who are already, it's, it's a, online, mm -hmm. online education already. Like, the student is already online, so this is the best way for them to go. But the in-person component of, of education, you know, when I think back on, on my elementary experience, it's like the moments that mm -hmm. stick out to me were with my friends and, and the learning yep. that happens away from the teacher's eyes. And so, uh, you know, how do you encourage that or, or build that into this model in the future? And then two, um, the separation of parent mm -hmm. and education, like, it's a hot topic right now. It's, it's sort of everywhere in the United States, but like <clears throat> over the last 18 months, parents have gotten the ability to um, like see what their kids are learning and they either love it or they hate it. And all of a sudden they have a, a, t a take on it, which they've never been able to do before because it's been inside the walls of a classroom. And so how do you think about that one? And then two, like what, is the right solution like uh, should parents have total control should they not have any control should they know what's going mm -hmm. on so my two questions are the in-person problem yeah. and the uh separation of parent and education great questions uh and i'll start with the the sort of the socialization piece because for sure we get that question a lot it's funny though we get that question from families that have never homeschooled or done uh online learning before i think those that have are you know, have, have already figured out that there's many ways to socialize your kid. But I'd say we solve that in three ways. The first is that we are finding very rich and meaningful socialization happening with kids in a fully virtual online environment. And I'll be honest with you, when we launched Prisma, we were very clear with our first families, this is an experiment, we'll see how this goes. And the number one thing we were worried about actually was what you just highlighted. Will kids make friends? Will they get rich socialization will they feel like they're part of a community and within week one we were already sort of mind being blown by the way the kids were forming friendships and connecting with one another we surveyed our, our prisma learners at the end of last year a hundred percent of them said they'd made close friends at prisma and that's happening you know i think um maybe for you know Certain generations, it's very strange, the idea of making friends online. But I actually think that's pretty natural for kids today. Uh, and we are facilitating that in a number of ways. It's happening in the stand-up that I mentioned. It's happening in workshops because the workshops are really small and there's lots of breakout groups. So you're meeting kids all the time through your workshops. And you're doing the same. It's the same group of kids that you're doing your workshop with. Uh, week after week so you get to know each other well we have really rich um, learner run clubs that are super engaged and the kids are 
you know, really enjoy those. We just have hangout lounges where the kids go in and hang out together. I was just um, seeing today in our parent community that uh, a couple of parents were getting kids together to build Lego together virtually. Uh, so the, the kids are forming real friendships. And actually, I'd say, to some extent, I'd say there's more meaningful opportunity for kids to really communicate, learn from one another, get to know each other at Prisma, where it's all about kids collaborating and discussing and interacting than perhaps there is in a regular school where you're more often sitting, depending on the school, but sitting, listening to a teacher. And, and then you get these awkward lunchtime dynamics where you, you know, the kids sort themselves into cliques. And it's another thing we've found. We've, we've found the social environment at Prisma it's not easy for kids to sort themselves in the way that I think happens in an in-person school. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's remained a really supportive community. But that's level one. The other level is um, we're already seeing uh, really great in-person sort of layers um, being built on top of Prisma. So parents, uh, we have, I'd say the majority of Prisma learners live near enough to other Prisma learners that they are getting together in person uh, on a fairly regular basis, whether it's in some cases once a week, families are getting together and we're actually helping to facilitate that, or it's more ad hoc where you know, a bunch of families in the area are getting together at a museum. But uh, that, that is happening and the more we grow, the more rich that's gonna become. We are also experimenting actually with a sort of hybrid version of Prisma where you do you still do all your learning in the virtual Prisma community. You show up for your Prisma virtual workshops and you're part of a virtual cohort, but there is a physical space that Prisma learners in your area can go to as often as they like. So you can go five days a week or three days a week. It's more like a co-working space than it is a school. And there's a Prisma coach there to support you, but you're not getting lectured at. You don't have to show up from nine to three. So that is something we'd like to continue to build out. Uh, and then the final thing I'd say is, you know, in-person socialization is really important. We would never say that you should only ever have virtual friends. And so we encourage all Prisma families to do extracurriculars with their kids, which I think is something that's very familiar to families already and just a natural thing to build on top of your kid's education, whether it's in-person or not. Your second question, uh, involvement of parents. Uh, yeah, I think this last this this time of COVID was very eye opening to parents. I think for a lot of parents, they got to see inside of their kids' education sort of how the sausage was being made in a way that they never had before. In a way that I think was a bit of an awakening for some parents. In fact, if you look at studies pre COVID, it actually shows that teachers are really frustrated with the education system, but parents were kind of like. It's okay. Uh, I actually think for some families, not all that really flipped and changed during COVID. And certainly a lot of families we have at Prisma were, um, you know, that was the case with them. They suddenly saw like, wait, my kid's schooling is not working the way I thought it was. Um, we started Prisma with a, a mindset of we want to make this as hands off for parents as we possibly can. Because at that time, everything you're hearing in the news was, oh, distance learning is a disaster. Parents are spending hours a day. They hate it. Uh, and so we wanted to create something where parents could be very hands-off. And I think we, we have been successful with that. When we surveyed our families uh, recently, the vast majority were spending less than an hour a day supporting their Prisma learner. And for many of those, it was like zero minutes a day. It does depend, though, on the level of sort of autonomy that a kid has. Older Prisma learners are more able to be independent than younger. Uh, kids with some special learning needs are able to be less in independent than others. But what we've come to realize is a large number of our parents are really happy to be involved and they want to be involved. And so what we now think about Prisma is a really wonderful opportunity for uh, kids, parents and coaches to be a sort of tightly um, linked sort of uh, feedback loop. Again, for families that want to. We have Prisma families that are completely hands-off and that's what they want and it's working. I think our coach model enables that to work. But we have other parents that are just really enriching their kids' learning, I think, by taking a great interest in it. And so 
coaches can uh, parents can follow along with the feedback that the coaches are giving to their learner they can jump on and chat with a prisma coach whenever they want to if they have concerns or ideas and so we're actually finding that that ability to collaborate with parents because they get insight into what their kids are doing in a way that i think you don't when you ship your kid off to physical school every day parents can overhear what's happening in workshops they can log into their kids um, start page and learning journals and see exactly what the kids are working on generally I think parents showing an interest in their kids education and being engaged is a really great thing for kids and really enhances their learning so I would say we view that as a as a plus but not a requirement of Prisma parents I've got about a million questions I want to ask so I'm just trying to prioritize which ones uh, one that's top of mind for me is this sounds like a really great fourth grade education right I agree like so wholeheartedly with so many of the fundamental issues of the existing school system i'm like yeah this just like sounds better uh for like someone who's in fourth or eighth grade so what's your i guess current like best case scenario for like what does this kid do when they graduate from your current coverage uh current scenario like what's your recommendation mm-hmm. and then do you have like a future case scenario where you'd like to grow into a support solution for those remaining like you know years of school right Yeah, so we are definitely getting asked and it is our plan to roll out high school for Prisma. What I'd say we are not currently focused on is going younger than fourth grade. Doesn't mean we wouldn't, but I think um, that, you know, there's some constraints to how young you can go and still have a kid really thrive in a, a, you know, virtual model that requires some level of self-direction. Uh, but going up into high school is sort of a no-brainer for us. It's it's in the works. Um, but, you know, we also don't want this to be the kind of model where you're locked in and, you know, because you did Prisma Middle School, you have to do Prisma High School. No, not at all. Um, and we're still early. We haven't talked about that, but, you know, this is our second year at Prisma. So we only have one graduating class at Prisma. But those uh, eighth graders that were with us have gone on to Actually, um, a couple have gone on to highly selective private schools. And so, you know, they were successful in getting admitted. Um, Others have gone into public school. Others have gone to online um, high schools. And we have actually been keeping in touch with them. And, you know, thus far, they're all thriving and doing great. Now, let's be real. They were only with Prisma for one year. So if they're doing great, I don't know that we can take full credit for that. But we are very focused on making sure that kids uh, are, are high, high school-ready and ready to thrive in high school when they leave Prisma. And our philosophy around that is they have to be at grade level or ideal ahead, ideally ahead in math. They need to be really strong writers and able to write across a variety of different sort of genres. They need to love reading. Beyond that, we are really focused on them having a set of skills that will make them really thrive in high school. Like they're great researchers. They know how to sort of learn about any topic that they're interested in. They are really strong um, orally. So they're able to, you you know, uh, come up with great uh, arguments that they back with with evidence. They're able to uh, present with confidence and, you know, the fact they present at Expo Day at the end of every cycle means they're getting, they're becoming really good public speakers. Uh, We want them to be able to set goals, achieve those goals, manage their schedule. And these are things that, you know, fourth graders are doing. They're setting goals, not just at Prisma, but life goals. They're managing towards those. They're managing schedules. They're managing task lists. We actually think these things are going to make Prisma learners better able to sort of thrive and hit the ground running in high school than a model that sort of spoon feeds kids, tells them what to do, and just sort of focuses on making sure they hit this this particular, you know, granular piece of knowledge in history or that p- particular piece of sort of very specific learning in science. Um, when it comes to things like science and history, we're more focused that kids on kids understanding the importance of those subjects, being able to think like a historian, being able to tie history to today, being able to think like a scientist, be able to design an experiment, read a research paper, then we are, that they cover very specific granular sort of pieces of information. Yeah, I, I think that's excellent. And exactly how, you know, 
when when you hear things that people say and you're like oh wait like i completely agree with this i couldn't have said it myself you know it's like oh this is where i want you know somebody that i'm raising to be um and in a community and environment like this i i think you know one question that i have and i'm going to try and bounce around this without um causing any problems but like so okay. private school is expensive and it yeah. it perpetuates yeah. the problems that exist where there's not an equal starting line. Like <clears throat> I'm yeah. all for people being faster than others, but if you if you are ahead in the race by a long margin when you're born, you're not going to get caught up to. And I feel like with yeah. a, with something like Prisma, you know, y- your parents have to be forward thinking. They have to understand like yeah. the value of an education that's like this, and I think most of the kids yeah. that are that are that are enrolling are probably already pretty far ahead. Um, and so, h- how would you say that you can expand this model to the the kids that are are not already you know running pretty yeah. far ahead in the race? Yeah, I mean it's it's a really great question, and it is something we care about. And it's something we're only partially delivering on today. So, um, so the first thing just to mention, yes, we have some really gifted kids at Prisma and the model is fantastic for them because they can move really fast and they can, you know, jump multiple grade levels in math. We have a bunch of kids that are coming in actually behind for a variety of reasons. And actually our model works equally well for those kids because we can just meet them where they're at. And instead of them sort of feeling stupid from day one, we actually try to slot them in right at the point where they really grasped the material so they feel successful right from day one. So we have a full range. Um, But nevertheless, are we fully reaching sort of all levels of all socioeconomic levels in, in society? No, uh, we do have the ability to reach kids from a wide range, though, because we do have financial aid and 40 percent of our families are on financial aid. And some of those families are, you know, either at full financial aid or close to full financial aid. But I think what we've sort of become more aware of since we started Prisma is just because you offer financial aid and even if you fully fund a child it doesn't mean that every kid is going to get access to what we're doing and and you pointed out uh, I think a really good point which is families right now have to find Prisma they have to be motivated enough to look for something innovative to be willing to try and risk something innovative and that takes a certain kind of family so I think Uh, Financial aid will continue to be really important. What we'd love to do uh, over time, but for now we are still more focused, I'd say, on just getting the model right, is partnerships with organizations that reach the kind of underserved communities that might never be out looking for something like this. But if they learn about it and they get the right kind of support, including a laptop and a good internet connection, that that this could be a real game changer for them. And there are some organizations that, there's many organizations that do that. There are some that, uh, you know, we have a relationship with that we would love to expand in that kind of way. But for now, we are still, I would say, we're still in that mode of trying to really... um, refine and and you know we very much believe in iteration and innovation and constant sort of tweaking and improvement and so i think uh we've got room to sort of get it right before we try to expand in that way but it is a definitely a goal and a dream of ours um to reach communities in that way and i think that's a that's a great answer and if you're trying to do all of that before you know it's a proven model then you're not going to be as effective if you want to make sure that what you're offering to the world is working uh one question i have because Right. You know, Kyle and I have both expressed that we feel very sold on the model as being like a, a good educational system, addressing lots of the the improvements. And it seems like an extremely resource heavy uh, thing to get right from individualized detention, uh, you know, good ratios of coaches to students, and then also just lots of people to make really great curriculum and kind of address these efficiencies. So, from like a business perspective, what's like what was the the funding for this project? How many like how did you find your initial batch of students? Like kind of how are you managing something that, right. you know, it's difficult to, to, to have an MVP, right? You don't want like an MVP of a school. You can have a software, yeah. right? You yeah. can have an MVP. If it does one thing, that's good because you don't have to, you can you only come over to right. everything once everything's there. Uh, but for school, that's just like, yeah, you don't need to do other school. Like this is school for you now. 
you kind of have to have all the pieces in place on day yeah. one. So what's been the approach for there? Yeah, and that's a big responsibility for us. Um, uh, yeah, so we have self-funded. Uh, uh, my husband and I were really fortunate when we sold our company to Google that that gave us sort of uh, resources for us to think about doing something really meaningful in the world in a way that we could self-fund it for you know quite a period of time. And in fact, we have received a lot of interest from venture capital firms, uh, but we for now really are for, we have we really like the freedom that we have to just self-fund Prisma because then we're not under pressure to grow faster um, than we think we're ready for. We're not under pressure to maximize profits over quality because we think in the end the best player in this space, the one that will ultimately be the biggest, uh, is the one that focuses on quality, on delighting parents and kids. And if that means taking a little slower to really get it right, we think that's worth it. Um, so we are self-funding. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's resource intensive, although when we launched Prisma, we had a couple of curriculum developers, we had a couple of coaches, we had, I think, one operations person. So the, the good news is as you scale up your um, human capital costs, it's because you're scaling up your number of students. The, the expensive piece in our model will always be the coaches. And I think one thing, you know, there's some innovative schools out there that would say, you don't really need the coach. And, you know, the coach is just a guide and, you know, you can have 40 kids for every teacher and maybe they'll figure that out. But we found that that coach and finding coaches that are just really amazing at bringing out the best in kids, super passionate about working with kids, and giving them the freedom to really form close relationships with kids is a super strong part of our model. So it is not our goal to try to get up to these enormous sort of ratios of kids to coaches. Um, but what we can do is use software and technology to make coaches much more efficient than they were than they were kid and providing uh, sort of rich sort of feedback to kids uh, and so that is one thing that we're investing in so if you want to talk about cost and you know an expensive part of building a company is building software just because software developers are expensive so that is probably the biggest overhead cost we have right now is that we do have a software development team we have a product team focused on building the kind of software that we'll need to create a really uh, delightful experience for the kids, but to also make, make our coaches as efficient as we possibly can so they can focus on that, that, that human aspect of being a coach that is so valuable for the yeah. kids. Oh, that's, that's a great answer. This is a question I didn't have on my uh, you know, list of questions, but something that just came up now, uh, and, you know, if we had more time, I'd get into a lot more of the, you know, kind of your uh, like pedagogy type stuff because I do find that like really really interesting. Uh, do you and I think this may or not may not be your goal at the moment based on kind of you know have you expressed that you're at the point in your career where you really are focusing on the impact project? Uh, but we are in this macro world seeing this huge mega trend of online education, cohort based online education, kind of these asynchronous hybrid models that have a lot of tools that are yet to be exist. Do you think there's like any chance that you do end up doing almost what happened uh, in your past? business where you know you created a business for x and then you needed you created your own solution to some niche problem you're facing and then like that in and of itself became the thing that gets commercialized where you know there's a lot of people attempting to do similar online things you're probably building a tool that addresses some problem that applies to all of these mm -hmm. and then you know you look you look down and you like accidentally have a SaaS an another SaaS company on your hands you that like definitely. is potentially has like yeah. an easier roadmap to scale or would, would you like are you open to that would you like see maybe just like and that could an potentially offer. fund yeah, Prisma. That too. I mean, that could be the result. Yeah. I think that's where that would be interesting. Mm -hmm. It's not a focus right now. We truly are building the software that Prisma will need to scale uh, because I think that's where our hearts are in. Our hearts are in this for really providing a better way to educate kids. Um, but if, if we hit on something that had the potential to help fund this model or to help make Prisma more affordable to many more kids, that would be pretty exciting. Or I guess there's always the option to spin something out so that it doesn't distract from, and, and there are other companies that have done that. 
um, uh, so it doesn't distract. But that is certainly not the intention. It is not the focus. And if that opportunity arose, then we'd want to address it in a way that didn't take us away from yeah, hire hire some operator to be like take over the SAS, the accidental SAS branch. Yeah. always an option yeah yeah um <clears throat> i was looking for so i've got two questions uh again obviously so the first <laughs> one is one thing that sticks out to me about your story is you and your relationship with your husband as co-workers building products together like you know you use the word delight a lot that seems to be a formula from other people as a way to not be delighted so how have you guys <laughs> right. like walked through made that, that together and, and made it work? And then my second question is about some incredible adventures that you have been on yourself, including, um, you know, living remotely in an Amazonian tribe and oh. then uh, five months living in a favela in Brazil. Both oh, of those things seem so insane. I'd, I'd love to hear those stories. So sorry for all the two part questions. Um, that but... one was bordering no on three worries. parts. Those are both great questions. Yeah, that was three parts. <laughs> My bad. Um, so people always find it really surprising and have these sort of um, horrified looks on their faces when I say I've worked, you know, built companies with my husband. Not everybody, but you know, some people are like, oh my god, I could never do that. Um, honestly, I think it works for us for the same reason. I think it works for some co-founders who are not married or in a relationship, and it works or it doesn't work which is we have a very clear set of skills that do not overlap. You know, we have very distinct skills and things we bring to the businesses that we founded together, which I think um, mean that we do not step on each other's toes in the way that sometimes happens. And like I said, I think this is an issue for co-founders in general. If you've got two people starting a business and they're both pretty similar in their skill sets, uh, I think that's both of all just a waste of resources and a recipe for conflict. Uh, so I think, you know, it's worked for my husband and I. He is uh, much more talented than I am when it comes to building products. He's uh, got a better marketing mind than I have. He's also just much more of a detail-oriented person and a visually sort of um, talented person than I am. I am more comfortable doing what we're doing right now, which is sort of, um, you know, being a spokesperson for Prisma or when we were in the world of raising from investors, that was something that I really like and feel comfortable doing. And then I'd say there's really great pros to starting a business with your with your partner because you're really in the trenches together and entrepreneurship can be scary and lonely and I super respect people actually that do it without a founder, without a co-founder um, because my husband and I just, you know, really support one each other, each other and when one needs propping up, the other one's sort of there and there's also never this issue of why are you working so late come home because uh, we're both working late um so you know it's worked for us but it doesn't mean we don't disagree on things i think we're both just the personality type where if we do we'll take that offline uh so the the team doesn't have to deal with that um so that is how we've made that work uh your other question that is nobody's ever asked me about those trips but there is Super fun. Um, when I was ooh, 19, uh, with a group of friends that I um, met when I went to this school in Las Vegas, New Mexico, we decided we wanted to go into the Amazon. We were, uh, one of those friends was from Venezuela. So we're in Venezuela. So we basically took a bus to the, <laughs> the last town before the Amazon. And we started asking around and it turned out there was a a uh, chief of a tribe was in the town at the moment getting supplies and he said if we paid for the fuel for the the engine for the canoe to, to get back to the village we could go with them to the village and so we did and uh it, it was nuts there was uh you know on that so that was about a Oh, it took us about five or six days traveling by canoe to get to this village. We stayed in different villages every night. There was one night we were told to barricade ourselves into the the, the hut that we were staying in because there had been attacks from a different tribe on that village recently. And uh, so, so, so we locked ourselves in the building. Uh, there was another village that we went to that had just built a new meeting house. So they were celebrating that and they had gone hunting and caught something called a danta, which they were 
eating and sharing as a community on that very night and we got to be the guests of honor which meant we got sat in the middle of this circular room and everybody else with the the village leaders everybody else sat around the outside and basically i i'm someone that doesn't like meat that much and the way this had been cooked as far as i could tell would been chopped up with a machete skin and bones and all and boiled and then we got served these dishes and nobody else was allowed to eat this whole community that was so anxious to eat this celebratory meat was allowed to eat until we in the middle had eaten this this dish. And I still don't recall how I ate it, but I did. Uh, and then we spent five weeks living in this village and there was tons of adventures um, during that time. So, you know, just a super cool experience that I had in my life. And then a couple of years later, I studied abroad in Brazil and I asked the organizer of that program I said I don't I don't want to live with a family that speaks English I'd prefer not to live with sort of a, a wealthy westernized family is there a interesting family I could live with that meets those criteria and he put me with a family in a favela so I spent six months sleeping in a hammock that that was above the bed of my host sister uh, there was no running water um, so you had to go out and pump water in the morning and with a bucket that was your shower um so that again was just an incredibly my travel experiences in my life when i think about what influenced my education and made me who i am it was actually the travel experiences that i had and so i have this really strong and the international school i went to this idea of having kids mix with others from all over the world is something i really believe in because that's what shaped who i am in a really big way i think that's a pretty awesome way to close out uh this interview uh, if people want to, and we honestly, our listeners are not a perfect mirror reflection of ourselves. We do have a lot of people that have children or are older than us and probably have kids or cousins or whatever in the target demographic. Uh, so where should we be directing people who are fascinated by this potential approach to uh, educating their kids and keeping up with you and the rest of your work? Sure. Uh, I mean, the best place to go is our website. We have a ton of information there. Join prisma.com so it's not prisma.com it's joinprisma.com uh and if you go there you can actually sign up um for a live info session so that's an even better way to get more information but that's where i direct people to get started awesome well this has been great thank you so much thank you thanks for the great questions it was a pleasure and that wraps up our interview with victoria ransom another incredible person that lewis and i have had the opportunity to interview uh, my three takeaways are, number one, skeuomorphic applications will not win. I know Lewis tweeted something about skeuomorphism uh, being all over the internet, and it's true. It's because of Chris Dixon on the uh, Web3 podcast with Tim Ferriss. But I think that in this context, it does make sense to use because a lot of the current online education startups are using a, a format that is taken directly from the real world and brought into the online community. And that's just not the way that things are going to win in the future. You have to have a, a you have to start from first principles, which appears that Prisma has done with their startup. Um, I think another thing is just how unbelievably important education is to the development of people. It can't be understated. And at this point, you know, I think it's broken in the United States and it, and it needs needs work and the future will look much different than it is now and experiments like prisma are a huge net positive to society so i commend them for doing what they're doing and then number three the one question that i have that sort of i didn't ask in this podcast was about the incentivization of their coaches and how they're doing it in such a way that it's better for them to do this versus i don't know go teach at a university or or some other alternative uh, for their teachers slash coaches is what, is what they call them. So I'll be looking forward to figuring that out in the future. Always good to still be chewing on the ideas from the conversation even after it's over. That's the point, right? If there's nothing to continue to think about, then nothing really changed in your head. First takeaway for me is just generally optimistic about the future of education. I don't know about broadly speaking for everyone, but, but I do think, you know, Victoria did give some examples of how they're trying to make access to this program more equitable for, so it's not just, you know, people who can afford the lifestyle of homeschooling to be able to make this work. Uh, but separate point from that is just, I'm really glad that things like this exist that are kind of making extremely, I don't want to say obvious, but just like pointing out glaring problems in the education system and doing their very best to design a system that doesn't have those same flaws. Uh, and I'm really glad that 
she's seeing really early traction that she has really enthusiastic parents. We didn't bring this up on the podcast, but their net promoter score. So like a way of measuring their, how happy their customers are is like incredibly high. Uh, so seeing someone try to do education in a better way than the traditional system and being commended for it is encouraging that it will grow. Maybe some people copy her and students will be better off for it. Second takeaway for me is a bit repetitive and something I say all the time, but Wow, are the interviews different when someone's solving a real problem versus when they're kind of just doing something neat? Uh, Kyle and I, I don't know about Kyle actually, but I really did not like the public school system very much at all. There's a lot of wasted time, lots of inefficiencies. I probably spent more time playing Clash of Clans in high school than most other things during the school day because whatever, it's boring, no one cares, etc. And that's really inconvenient and sad. Whereas a model like this that's solving a real problem, right? Kids are distracted, they're disengaged, they're wasting time. That kind of makes them unhappy to spend their days like that. She's fixing all of those things. And that is why, like I said in my first takeaway, people are probably enthusiastically speaking about her product. Third takeaway for me is just talking about various assumptions uh, that we kind of have about the education system. So a lot of the criticisms that get levied towards her are like, how are kids going to socialize? It's like, well, if they honestly look back on their school days, how great of a social environment was that? She brings up great examples of how intimidating the lunchroom is and how cliques naturally form and kind of like small kids get picked on by big kids and like all of these terrible dynamics that emerge in the classroom uh, when making online friends is one, has like certain advantages. Two, like kids are already doing that now anyway. They meet their friends in school and then they're just texting people throughout the day. So the communications are largely virtual. And then everyone just forgets that there's other ways to meet people outside of school, like just throwing their kid in any sport or activity or like anything. Uh, so a lot of those criticisms are just kind of people desperately clinging to the status quo for not really clear reasons besides fearing change for the sake of change. That's all I have to say for this episode with Victoria Ransom. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did as well. If you'd like to show your support for the Lewis and Kyle show, that's us, Lewis and Kyle. You can listen to another episode. We've got about 90 other in the feed. Also a bunch on YouTube. If you prefer to look at us when we talk as well. And if you want to give us any feedback, say, hey, chat, anything like that, we're pretty easy to find on the internet. We've got an email address listed in the show notes. We've got a website. We've got social media handles that are under our names. So get involved, say, hey. Otherwise, we'll be back in more or less one week-ish with another episode. Thanks so much for listening. See you then. Bye-bye.